Welcome to our panel discussions with members of MHI's Conveyor and Sortation Systems Group and Metonymous Automation Group, as we're going to be discussing how these technologies can be successfully integrated within a productive distribution environment. Of course, for decades now, automation has been a game changer for distribution centers, as conveyors have allowed products to be transported point to point easily and efficiently throughout facilities. Sortation systems have allowed products to be separated and redirected for various functions and uh, mobile automation, such as autonomous mobile robots and automatic guided vehicles have assisted with transporting products and reducing worker steps as those workers have performed their jobs, including picking. And as labor continues to be difficult, if not impossible to find for our facilities, these systems will play an even greater role in equipping and how they can work together to, to reduce labor, gain productivity and speed products on their journey. And we have four experts joining us from the CSS and MAG groups of MHI. And in alphabetical order there, Chris Woodall, he's the Director of Integrator Services at Hytrol Conveyor Company. Gil Leba is Director of Business Development at uh, North America at Leonardo. Kai Beckhouse is president at MCJ Supply Chain Solutions. And John Hayes is director of sales at Value. Welcome, gentlemen. Great to have you all with us. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Uh, to begin our conversation today, let's get down to some basics. And really, that's finding uh, how do you find trusted technology partners to, to be able to do all this? You, you see a need for automation, you, you have a desire for it, you have the budget to be able to do it. Um, so, Gil, let me ask you, how do you know which technology provider to choose out of all the, the many that are available within the market? Well, that is the question, isn't it, David? Uh, these, are not, these are not capitally insignificant investments that our, uh, our customers and end users uh, need to make. So uh, I would say one of the biggest things you're going to want is, uh, is stability. You know, companies that have been around for a while, especially in this space, they know how to not just manufacture, uh, procure, but uh, they know how to design. You know, some of these are highly bespoke systems that are tailor-made when they're done right to each uh, each individual customer's specific operation. And so, uh, those manufacturers, designers, integrators that know how to take those specific parameters uh, into account when they're designing a system, that's going to be a key to success. And I'm not just talking about what's going on inside the building. I'm even talking about wider. Like, what is your network? look like what is your what is your strategy you know if you get a later cutoff if i can if, if you get a truck that comes in late and we can give you potentially yeah you could you can move your cutoff a little further out because we can speed certain priority lanes through the system and get you uh, get you some later dispatch time you know that could be a value uh, depending on the customer yeah what do the rest of you think what what are some of the the priorities or the criteria that you think um, companies should use in evaluating a provider of systems? Well, I, I think that um, to, to make a, a, a cute little joke would be from, be from Missouri. It's, it's very easy to get sold. Um, the benefit, I think, of MHI as a group is that um, our goal is to prevent some of this for our customers. But um, the real important thing is to go take a look at what your vendor has done in the past. Um, it's very easy for a vendor to say that they can do something. And I encourage everyone in their mind when they hear, yes, we can do that, to see air quotes around can, because um, typically it comes with given enough time and money. So I think that realistically, um, and probably the easiest 
way to approach this is, is do a little due diligence up front and take a look at a company that's done what you're looking to do. It, it eliminates an awful lot of risk on the backside. And that's, uh, that's really one of the true benefits of MHI, I think, is that you, you have a group of people who, who have done these things for ages. And Another aspect I would add is uh, make sure the vendor you're talking to is asking a lot of questions to you. This is not buying something off the shelf, but our, as Jill said, highly customized system. So whenever someone is approaching you and doesn't really ask questions, just listens, then uh, it's a bad sign. You want them to get on your nerves, ask a lot of questions so that you can make sure it's a tailor-made customized solution. I would agree with that. If you're not challenged by the vendor or the, the integrator, then you've got the wrong one selected. Good point. You talked about how these are all customized solutions in a sense. Not, not a lot is cookie cutter, although you have experience of having done similar projects in the past. So when somebody comes to you and wants to know what, what is the best type of system to work for your operations, just in general, we'll get into specifics about different technologies, but what, what do you usually say to them? What, what is the best one for their kinds of system? Gil? Well, that's easy. It depends, <laughs> right? <laughs> To, to go along with what we just said, highly bespoke systems, different operations, different products, uh, dimensions, weights, characteristics. Uh, 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 it could be a greenfield facility or a brownfield facility. Even the execution plan can totally change uh, depending on uh, what the specifics are. So uh, what system is going to work best for you? Again, like everyone was saying, if, we're, if guys like us aren't asking the right questions, and and like I said, almost getting on the customer's nerves. Hey, I got to know this. I got to know this. I got to know this. That's the only way we're going to be able to design these systems that solve not just the problems that our customers are facing like today, but all the stuff that the future could conceivably hold, which is why flexibility in terms of the products you can handle, uh, the dynamic sort plans, maybe different speeds for different times of day. Sometimes really nasty product comes in overnight in these facilities, but during the day they might have cleaner easier to handle Well, we could do different sort profiles conceivably you know i don't want to get too into the details just yet but that's just a, an example of what type of system do i need well we got to sit down and we got to chat sure one one thing yeah, i would okay. i would add dave is um we're talking about automation and um, what I would recommend customers is be bold about your plans to automate. A lot of customers want to do very baby steps and automate a single tiny bit, but that typically doesn't pay off that well. While um, a lot of customers opt for breaking down a bigger scope of automation into three phases, but everything is scoped together. And some customers are leaving out um, that we uh, have to make sure to have the interfaces right and think about the automation holistically to get the most benefits out of it. When people go into a system, they obviously want to have some longevity with this system. They don't want it to be obsolete tomorrow, you know, the next day, the day after. And fast things change in our marketplace today. I think that's a real concern of automating systems and then being tied, in, tied to that automation until you at least get the ROI out of it. When people come to you, how long are they looking for a timeline for how they how long they want to keep that system operating before they think of the next system to replace it? And, and what kind of ROIs are they looking for? Anyone? 
Well, I'll take that since we're all jumping right on it. Um, (laughs) For us, which is the AGB industry, the paradigm has been the same for for the vendor side for a very long time. So let's start there. So the vendor side will typically sign up for a 10-year lifespan, and that has nothing to do really with the equipment so much as it does um, processor power. So uh, the, the processors that we put in in 10 years are or boat anchors. So they they're, they're, they will still do the job, but they're nearly unsupportable. Typically, the equipment will last much longer than that. Now, what do customers want? I think that their view of the lifespan of our equipment is um, probably, uh, as far as longevity, is probably less than we were expecting, simply because they're used to changing out forklifts on a regular basis. They might have a forklift for 6,000 hours, which might be one year. Um, an AGV might run a third more than that because we're running, you know, three shifts, but we don't get the, the where, you know, we're, don't, we're not jackrabbing starts, we're not stopping on a dime. So I think that their sunset view is probably, you know, probably the five to 10 years what they would expect to get. However, the paradigm of ROI is a totally different conversation. And in the U.S., it has been 18 months to two years for as long as I can remember um, not, not nearly what it is in Europe, which seems to be a much longer ROI cycle just because they have adopted um, automation and they understand the, the benefits, not just cost. But with that said, it's important to note that um, people are buying automation today for a whole nother reason than ROI. So even though at some point someone with the checkbook is going to show up and beat us on price, if that's what happens. The, the reason that they're pulling the trigger mostly now is exactly what you said in the beginning. It's nearly impossible to get labor. It's hard to get someone on a fork truck. And I have some very good tr- friends in the supply chain um, industry that have added millions of dollars to their budget because they had to add a single dollar to, you know, a, a $15 an hour job is now 17 or $20 an hour and it's spiraling their costs out of control. So it's still, I think, true that they're going to try to look for a two-year ROI, but some companies, especially Fortune 500, are going, you know, you're, you're, you're typically talking cost of money then, and they're going a, a, a four-year or a five-year. But right off the bat, you're looking at, at two years almost as a level plane is what they're looking for for an ROI. Yeah. We've seen that, too, in stories that we've covered is that it seems to be that people are tolerant for a longer ROI. Uh, similar, well, not even quite to the standards that Europe accepts, but the, that 18 months is, is stretching a much longer now. Uh, what else have you guys, the rest of you seen also as far as kind of uh, dealing with those customer expectations and, and helping them to, to take that step into automation with how long the system will last, what kind of ROI, kind of getting over that fear factor that, oh, I'm going to be tied down for a long time with this. I think a lot of... Uh, the- things that have changed in this industry is that it's not uh, capex right up front as much as it used to be a lot of paper use models and so on are leasing is becoming more and more popular and the vendors are just looking to have a security um, for those services that are required to install that obviously it's not attractive for a vendor to have a lot of customized services and then only have a usage fee or lease fee of a couple of months so that is a fair split that a lot of clients want to do to really say the ROI and the, the capex um, is uh, 
moved over, was working with a finance partner and just pay for the services, installation services up front. And with, with models like that and the flexibility and ease of adaption of the technology, even industries like 3PLs, logistic companies, which typically have a shorter term lease on their end customer contracts of two, max three years, become interested in AGVs, which was not the case um, five or 10 years ago. So uh, the adoption automation is in everyone's mouth and it's really helpful to support the operations and more and more industries are adapting to that. And um, AGVs, AMRs, and I bet also conveyors are, are really attractive ROIs and attractive investments for our clients in the supply chains. So looking at your question about the longevity of the equipment. So, you know, as things change and, and as, as, you know, first question you really need to be asking is, are you gonna have maintenance staff or are you gonna do preventative maintenance? You know, because there's so many customers that no longer have that staff and it actually will change which, which type of equipment you're going to actually actually tell them they need because there are, you know, some equipment's easier to work on than others. And some of them's not as uh, not as um, long or long. Their downtime's less and things like that. So you've got to be asking those questions now because so many, so many companies no longer have the staff that's going to do preventive maintenance or even routine maintenance or any kind of maintenance. They, they're going to hire it all out. So. One of the first questions you got to ask is that because you know conveyors that they're easily going to last 20 years as long as you take care of them. We got you know some that's, that's longer than that, 25, 30 years, and you know we've been selling conveyors. We're, we're celebrating 75 years. Actually, tomorrow our conventions tomorrow we'll start celebrating 75 years, and it's amazing how how the industry's changed so much since I've been in for 25 years. So it, that's one of the first questions you got to ask, and then and from that you're going to determine which what is the best solution for them. No, that's a great point. Uh, I'll just echo what everybody said. Um, obviously, the conveyor sortation side, it's a little bit different, I think, than the, what I've heard on like the robotics, even the software as a service type of models. Uh, but certainly on the maintenance, you know, we have customers that they're uh, they have a they have a highly skilled maintenance force on site. So really what they need are access to spares and some, uh, you know, emergency on site uh, response times and, and, and some training materials. Other customers, like, look, man, I'm just here to fill orders. You know, the logistics piece is mm -hmm. a cost of doing business. It's not my core business. I need people to help maintain this equipment. And so, you know, uh, I think customers should be looking at, like what Chris said, depending on your application, depending on the technology, uh, you need to find uh, uh, providers that can do whatever level of maintenance support that meet the customer where they are. So, Sure. And I guess that's, that's all part of managing expectations. And uh, when you have a project or a customer coming to you, how knowledgeable are they typically in what they want or what they're looking to do? Or do they need to be kind of walked through an educational process where they begin to understand the technology? They may be aware of what technology is, but really don't have a clue as to how to go about it. But did you find that runs the gamut from customer to customer or where, where are our customers today? I'd like to start with this one because this one is, has changed radically for Kai and I. Um, I've been doing this since 1992 and it was black magic in 1992. It was complete black magic. And the phone calls were, were all about how does this stuff work? And all the way down to what bearings are you using in your drive motors, which God only knows. Um, the internet has allowed us, uh, or as a society access to so much information that it's actually swung the total different direction now. And there are people on calls now with me that 
know more than I do, or at least sometimes they believe that they do. And um, it has uh, become that we're not so much educating people anymore on, nor do they seem to care on how we do what we do. So for instance, guidance methods and things like that, they're, they're important, but less important than they were in the past. Um, what's more important, I believe, and what I don't think they're educated on, and which is very important, the very important why MAG is here, the MHI and the MAG group, is they're getting an awful lot of misinformation. And I mean a lot of it. Um, so it's it's almost reining them back in and setting the, and Gil said, it's setting the expectation. And, and, and so did Chris, it's setting the expectation on, you can't do everything with, with this stuff. You, you need to be targeted and it needs to, you know, you need to set the framework under which conditions they will work. It's, it's not black magic anymore. And it's not magic that we just go in and poof, it works. You, you have to sit down and, and understand with them what the application is and then build the correct product or solution, probably the best way to say it for that application. And it's almost bringing them back from the edge of all this diluge of information they're getting. There's information overload out there. And I think it's contingent on us to, to point them in the right direction so that they're not getting bad information. Let, let me add to that question. What I also see a, a difference in customers being informed, the bigger customers um, like Walmart or DHLs who have innovation groups, they are typically very well informed and know a lot about the technology, different vendors, and also the difference. They understand the difference between more a startup technology-driven adoption of automation versus the more reliable, um, uh, longer existing, more customized and, and purpose-fit applications. Whereas the smaller customer that um, Mark is attracted by marketing or has the need or comes to whatever sales channel there is uh, to us as a vendor, those can require a little bit more of education of what the technology really can do, what the advantages are versus uh, deploying an AGV versus an AMR or even differences between uh, conveyors and AGVs to use. Uh, that's uh, that's something that I would say is, is a big difference in the in the size and who is approaching us as vendors? So I would, I would, I think that there's an interesting question here because we have been considered this uh, kind of out in left field technology. It's been black magic, but on your side of the fence, it's been a bit different. You, your stuff has been around for a long time, but certainly you must be getting the a similar degree of question. Or, or an arc of question, has it changed over the years with respect to what customers are asking you for? Or is it now just, here's your solution and let's work through it? So as, you know, as the industry changes and we always look for ways to go greener and ways to pull it, make it more it things energy efficient, it, the, the technology is constantly changing and, and the customers constantly changing what their requirements are based upon, hey, I'm trying to meet this requirement. And, you know, with, with now, to, there's so many different customers wanting IE5 motors, IE4, and these different type of um, highly ener energy efficient, and, and how you size those is it, completely different than the way we currently size something just based upon how much torque and belt pull it is, you know, for a belt bear. It, it changes a lot of the way we have to think, so I, I would agree. 
Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll echo uh, what the panelists just said. Um, and Kai, I like how you mentioned, you know, some customers are, that's usually the scale that they are there. I can't teach them anything. They probably know more about the technology and what the options are because they deal with everybody and they know how best to leverage this. They have a lot of in-house expertise. Uh, and there are other customers that they don't, you know, they're, they're, they're usually the smaller, maybe the three PLs. They're like, I have a core job to do all this handling of materials. It's a, it's a cost of my business. It's not something that I specialize in. And so we do see a, the need to educate them more uh, about the technology. And, and I like how you guys said uh, you're very kind as uh, I would have said, we're, we're the boring technology here. Uh, Chris and I are the boring stuff. I mean, <laughs> we, we've been around since the, uh, the, the last century, you know, the 20th century. Yep. Um, and I know robots started there too, but I, I love how the robot robotic technology has gotten more and more powerful with vision systems, software. Now it used to be you had to take the process to the robot. Now we can literally take the robots to the process, which is why I see such a such a great uh, synergy between. Gosh, did I really use that word? Sorry. Uh, such a great interface between uh, AMR type of AGV technology and the traditional fixed conveyor sortation systems. It's like ham and eggs or peas and carrots, beer and pizza. You know, they, they seamlessly, uh, you, you can leverage the strengths of the flexibility of AMRs and then the high speed uh, reliability, almost boring reliability of the traditional conveyor based sortation systems. And, you know, it, it, it's a perfect, it's a perfect match, perfect match. Well, we're talking today about the different types of technologies and how they can work together. We've been talking about choosing systems and let's go through some of the major portions of the technologies that we're talking about. So Chris, I'd like to turn to you and ask you, you know, what are some of the, the different criteria that's used for choosing the correct conveyor for a particular application? But assume it, a lot of it has to depend on what you want to convey, how much you want to be able to convey, how much percentage of your product, the weights, all those sort of things. But what, what goes into that selection? Yeah, so, so first thing we're always going to ask is what, what is the product itself? And, and you know, product specifications, not only um, does it matter what the min and the max and the average is? We, we actually need to know all of them. And, and, and not only that, how is everything going to be weighted? And then, you know, ultimately, you know, what's your end rate? What, what's your final rate at the sortation at the, at the shipping sort? What's it going to be? But that's what most people focus on. But we need to know every single area, what you're doing in those areas, what what rate, what throughput you're trying to get, how many, you know, it's as simple as how many workers are going to be in the area and, you know, how much research can you expect? And, and it's amazing how customers, they're like, research, what are you talking about research? You know, well, you know what, you're going to miss something or you're going to have a customer, one of your employees is going to go to the bathroom. They're going to take, you know, you, you give them five minutes and they take 10 minutes or whatever. You know, there's always things that they don't think about, but ultimately it's always down to the product and not only what the product is, you know, is it poly bags, envelopes, is it totes, is it flat bottoms, is it concave, convex, and uh, you've got to have those details. If you don't have those details, you, you're just you're just kind of throwing uh, darts at a board and hoping something sticks. So, it, it, you know, that's the that's always the, the, the main question that we always ask. And even after we get that, you know, even some of the most simplest product that you think is going to convey fine, um, it, it's, it's always worth testing because, it you know, it's always amazing how your customer tells you these are flat, perfect boxes, then you get them and there's a chime in it or something's in there that's got heavy on one end or, or trying to move protein, you know, with the, with the bones and the way boxes are weighted. So it, it always comes down to the product and then that, that's, that's where you start making the selections. And I imagine that also determines too the conveying surface using rollers or belts or some yep. other plastic surface or something yep. of that sort. Yep. 
Um, Kai, Kai, let's look at uh, AGVs. What are some of the good indicators or reasons for deploying an AGV in lieu of a, of a forklift or even a conveyor? I, I think the one main criteria is repetitive transport in a defined environment. So as soon as it's a few different load carriers, if you see forklifts driving uh, from A to B, empty pallet disposal or staging, um, a lot of these very repetitive tasks, which are in a very defined job scope. That's the main criteria. And selecting the technology is then something which goes very, very similar to what we just heard from the conveyor side. It's more about describing the challenge. I have this many pallets that need to be transferred. Um, we hear a lot of customers coming to say, I have three forklifts manually operated of type XYZ, and I want three AGVs to do the same thing. But that's the wrong approach, right? Uh, because um, a lot of differences between AGVs, it is about looking at the application, something that is repetitive, that uh, has clear environment, and then your vendor will suggest how many of what type, whatever automation is best suitable to do the job. Yeah, and looking at the difference between an AGV and an AMR, um, there's often, you know, we, we find this all the time where it's, it's actually difficult to describe or, or define because there's a lot of crossover between the two within the industry, right. the way that individual companies describe them. So, John, how would you define them and what, what should someone look to whether they're trying to decide whether an AGV or, or an autonomous mobile robot is better for their application? Well, I'm, I'm uniquely positioned for this question, so thank you very much. Um, I've had a fair amount of experience with AMRs just from my previous um, job. The, the primary, it's, it's very black and white to some degree, and then there's an area in the middle that's not quite so black and white. Um, the black and white portion of it is AMR's path plan, meaning that as they guide, they think about where they're going and then define their own route as they go. AGVs by their very nature go all the way back to the, you know, the early days where they were following a wire. The concept of guidance is still much the same, except we don't use wires anymore. Um, the middle ground where it's gray is the type of guidance that we use. Most of us use SLAM. Now I'm getting a little techie, but just bear with me, which means that there's an overlap in the guidance types, even though we're using the same sensor base and all those things. However, in many people's minds, the difference are AMRs or small bot-like vehicles typically used for picking, totes and bins, um, where AGVs are typically designed uh, or defined as something that moves pallet size loads or larger. Um, and that's kind of that gray area. There are companies in the middle that can do both. And then, you know, AGVs typically um, the larger loads and those sorts of things. And how do you pick between the two? Right now, it's fairly straightforward. Um, but the, the technology is blending to a point where um, fairly soon you won't know the difference between the two. And frankly, if someone didn't tell you, you wouldn't know anyway um, when it comes to forklift size vehicles and, and that tech path following versus path planning. It's very hard to tell the difference. Great. Anybody want to add to that? Anything? The one thing that I always like to give is a little analogy from a different domain. 
back in the days, there was laptops and then uh, the iPhone uh, was the first smartphone category. And you could choose between these two. And nowadays you have like tablets of any size, right? You could you could slice it into a quarter of an inch or less. Any size from the tiny smartphone to the largest laptop you would find is on the market. And it's a similar thing in the HV and AMR world. Um, it used to be these very small turtle, uh, we call them turtle HVs, AMR sometimes a small category, and then the big paper wall AGVs. And now, as John said, these totally blur. It is, you can get any size and any sensor configuration and navigation technology on these. And it is not important to differentiate it. I would not recommend any purchaser going out to, I want an AMR or I want an AGV. It's coming back to, of course, for the vendor selection, do your due diligence, who has the kind of rough kind of machines you want to get, but then describe the challenge, the task that these uh, piece of mobile equipment should do and let the vendor suggest what, going back to the analogy, tablet size or here AGV, AMR kind of thing is the right purpose fit. Right, so focus on the application and not the initials or the or how you want to define that. Chris, um, uh, Hytrol of course makes a lot of different kinds of sorters, one of the leading sorter sortation companies, manufacturers in the world. Um, all kinds of different sorters are out there, sliding shoe, cross belt, tilt tray, pusher, pop-up wheels, Bombay, just to name a few off the top of my head here. Um, how do you determine what is the best kind for your application? Is it similar to the conveyor selection that we talked about earlier? It's quite similar. It you know, definitely comes down to product, but it also comes down to rates. Rate, rates help determine which sorter you're going to select. And then also, what, what are you planning on doing with the sorter? You know, a lot of you may have multiple sorters in your warehouse. You may you may, you may have a pre-sorter. Like when you bring a product in, into the building and, and you, you need to send it to different areas of the building. Um, not you know, Maybe you're going to store part of it. Maybe maybe you're going to do a semi-store, semi-cross stock. You know, um, especially with the, the way that the, the world's changed now with the supply chain issues. Um, if you don't have a pre-sorter that allows you to get product to the shipping sorter quicker, then, then a lot of customers are trying to figure out how to put one in now, so so that they can they can add that flexibility. And if they you know so if they need to store it, they can send it to storage. If they don't need to store it, they can get it immediately to the to the shipping center. So, um, but but you know there's so many different technologies, whether it's pivot wheel, narrow belt, uh, shoe sorters, bombays, uh, that technology. Most of it comes down to weight, uh, weights and rates. So. Okay. Kai, um, let's talk a moment about AGVs and, and a project of purchasing an AGV. How is that project handled process-wise? Is it similar to buying a forklift or what, what, what's involved in that process? Yeah, coming, coming back to what we talked about a little earlier, that it's not buying off the shelf. So the questions that will be asked are really different. Um, it's important to understand an AGV as any automation process is something which is custom built. So expect those questions to be asked, data to be provided, a solution design phase, um, and equipment not just being shipped and someone giving a moment of instructions, but a, a deployment installation phase where the fine tuning is done, where tests are being done. And that's then a handover. Some uh, customer applications require or it's advisable to do a, um, a introduction phase as well after go live to be on site for a week from the vendor to answer any questions that are there. It's really a process where someone takes you by the hand and guides you through the whole thing versus buying a product, having it shipped, having 
some instructions of how to use it of being given a manual and then run it on your own. That's a big difference where an HGV and AMR is really what we just call a project sale versus a product sale. And in those kinds of projects, again, we had talked about the, the difficulty in finding labor. So a lot of people are entering into those projects now because they can't find that labor to do that. So in a lot of ways, you're replacing a person moving the product with a machine moving the product. What are people looking for in that kind of a return on investment where it's, it's um, they're almost forced into the project in a sense because they can't find alternatives otherwise? Correct. Right. I think it, it has always been that these automation projects are a no-brainer for three-shift applications because the ROI is just super good. A two-shift application has always been attractive as well and is still very attractive now. And I see that with even a little Potentially, it depends on case by case, but potentially a little longer ROI for a one-shift application because of the labor shortages. More and more clients who just run one shift are still interested in automation now, which they wouldn't have been doing maybe four years ago because for eight hours of operation and um, 16 hours of the equipment just being shut off or at the charger, uh, it doesn't make so much sense as, as the higher utilization. But even those clients, because of the labor shortages, the... And, other advantages you have, uh, John mentioned it earlier, um, not stopping on the dime. The wear and tear is a lot lower on the equipment, also on the goods. The processes are more reliable, no pallets placed at a wrong destination. There's a lot of side benefits that come with automation and more and more even one shift applications are going this route. John, um, in looking at uh, using an AGV in, 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 to replace a forklift operator or a forklift itself, are AGVs as fast as people operating forklifts? And if they aren't, does that mean you have to have more AGVs to get the same kind of volume? They are. Here's a nugget for everybody who might listen to this. There's a rule of thumb for this. It's typically 1.3 to 1.5. So they're, they're not nearly as fast. And generally speaking, the reason is because of the safeties that we adhere to. All um, AGB manufacturers, reputable AGB manufacturers in the U.S. adhere to ANSI B56.5, uh, which sets a set of rules and regulations that we all follow with respect to safety and speeds and distances and those sorts of things. So in order to be as safe as possible, we typically all cap our speeds between two meters to three meters per second. Um, now, in I'm seeing more and more in manual operations that the customers are capping their forklift speed at two meters per second. So we're roughly running the same. However, generally speaking, it still takes 1.3 to 1.5 AGVs per forklift operator, which is why when Kai was talking about ROI, it's a direct mathematical equation because you can't, it's not one AGV per person. So if you take one forklift and replace it with one AGV, when you get to two shifts, it starts to make sense because you're, you know, even though you have one motive piece of equipment, a forklift, you have two operators. When you go to three shifts, you've got three operators. So it starts to make a lot more sense. So no, it's not a one for one, which is why the paradigm's always been two or three shift operations for AGVs. That's the sweet spot. Um, but it's, it's getting better. Prices are coming down. Labor rates are going up. So it's getting better in that way, but it's still, we're still slower. And that, and it, it's always interesting when you take a customer into an operating site and they watch, you know, this is moving very slowly. 
And you go, yes, it is. However, it's actually moving faster than the system that it replaced. Um, you know, we'll design a system around throughput, not number of vehicles. That's the one thing Kai alluded to earlier is that many customers will say, I have three forklifts, I need three AGVs. Well, that's the questions like Gil and Chris and Kai were talking about when you dig in and you start to say, I'm not really concerned about that so much as I am. How much throughput do you need to move? How many pallets per hour do you need to move? And then, you know, there are nuances to that. What's your peak? What's your peak of the peak? And you typically, we typically design to peak and then handle peak of peak with, with the overages. Um, so it, it always comes down to the questions with respect to throughput, how many pallets per hour. And then we design that way, but almost always, Dave, it's more, more AGVs than forklifts when it starts out. And I imagine too, looking at that safety factor is also a nice benefit when you look at uh, some of the biggest OSHA violations occur from forklift operators, either not driving the, the truck properly or not adhering to the established safe practices and principles that the company has laid out. Yeah, I, I did a presentation recently to a customer, an actual customer that we sold to, and they were asking about those incidents. And it's quite clear, you can go to the OSHA site. The problem is you have to dig for AGV instances um, because whether fortunately or not, they're looking for fatalities. And there are a few, very few. Um, by the other side of that is there's quite a few for forklifts. And I'm not taking shots at forklifts. Manufacturers got nothing to do with the truck itself. It has a lot to do with an, an operator that, you know, is not engaged. And who would be? Who would be engaged driving a forklift eight hours a day? Those things occur. So on the grand scheme of things, AGVs are infinitely safer than, than people on forklifts. Can they do similar type of work to a, what a forklift can do? For instance, can they unload a truck or load Absolutely. a truck? Sure. There, there are still some blue sky things that AGVs are tasked with or, or customers would like to do. There are companies that provide automatic truck unloading. Um, certainly customer or certainly vendors that provide automatic truck loading, um, different flavors of vehicles and different types. Um, and from that point, literally anything that can be moved in a facility within reason on a fork, uh, forklift can be mirrored with an AGV. Again, we're not as fast and we may not be quite as, um, uh, efficient in some of the moves that we do, especially truck loading, truck loading typically is a very difficult application because of the speed that's required. You wanna get the pallets off the dock as fast as possible. But I would say that a large portion of what can be done with a, a person can be done with an AGV with some notable exceptions. And we've all seen those bulk, irregular loads, those sorts of things. But we have ways around that. We can use a tugger or a different type of vehicle to move those loads. It's just sometimes very inconvenient. Mm -hmm. Gil, we've been talking about the, the labor savings and advantages of all of that, but yet we're adding, adding a lot of com complex processes, a lot of complexity within the facility. So if you're already having trouble staffing operations, adding more complexity, would that sort of exasperate some of the issues that we've been talking about? It, it could. It could potentially. I mean, that's the, that's the scary part for you know, some of our customers and end users. Um, I keep sensing a theme, right? <laughs> Every other question, it seems to be, it depends. You got to ask some questions. We got to know more. We got to help uh, uh, drive the technology to fit your uh, your process as the, as the end user customer. Um, 
one of the things that so so at Leonardo we manufacture cross belts, high speed sortation systems, loops, loop sorters. Uh, one of the things that's nice about our technology is it's very flexible, right? So you can handle flats, uh, fragile items, uh, uh, longer items that we can just straddle a couple of cells and sort carefully. Uh, why am I saying this? It's because there is a danger when you bring in technology that, you know, now I'm just, I just have more exception handling around the tail ends of these package distributions at this part of the system or this part of the building. So it's, it's very incumbent upon us as designers and manufacturers to, to make these systems with those, these labor uh, 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 bottlenecks in mind. And not only the labor bottlenecks, even the process bottlenecks, right? If you think about it, our systems, uh, the last few years, let's say before, go back before COVID, right? We're unloading systems, unloading trucks faster and faster. Let's call it, say, the loose load truck, faster and faster unloads. Uh, then we're, then we're, uh, uh, if you're Courier Express, we'll, uh, we'll often do a bulk collection and then singulate and gap. Uh, maybe warehouse distribution, we, ne we, we just do those uh, large scale merges so we never have to deal with the singulation. But irregardless, it's typically speed up, takeaways faster and faster, dimway scan faster and faster, sort faster and faster. But then it always hits that bottleneck of the load door, right? Right now, it is not technologically possible to have a robot or some sort of automation technology play 3D Tetris inside a loose load trailer. It doesn't exist. It's almost like we're fighting the second law of thermodynamics, right? It's the law of entropy. It's easy to go from an ordered system to unloading. We don't care what order the boxes are, are loaded, but we very much care what order those boxes are loaded. I can't put a light item down at the bottom and then heavy stuff on top, it's gonna crush it. So the systems that we design need to be very, very cognizant of that fact. And again, comes back to the, you know, the discussion. It depends on, on your designer, it depends on how we're gonna leverage that technology, so. And Chris, and kind of looking at that throughput, because you, you do wanna to try to avoid bottlenecks throughout the system where you can, is there an advantage to doing pre-sorting? And maybe you can even describe what a pre-sorter is. And yeah, so, applied. You know, what we describe pre-sorter as as you as you're receiving product, uh, pre-sorter as you stage and, and merge, your pre-sorter will determine what area the building is going to go to. And so, if you have a, a storage area, or if you have a, a value add, or a hospital line, or you got to go add labeling, or, or or whether it's you know maybe you got a master case and they have to tear it down and break, break it into smaller items, pull things out. That, that's what the pre-sorter does. It, it determines where those are going to go in, in, in your warehouse. And then, you know, the, the biggest, the, the latest one is now, you know, your early outs. Get something to the shipping dock quicker. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that's the advantage of your, as your pre-sorter. But, then, you know, it always determines, you know, what, what, what merge type are you going to have to use? So is it going to be a, uh, is it a simple three to one, two to one, something like that? Or are you going to have to have a sawtooth merge with multiple multiple merge lines coming in and, and when you do that what's the rate going to be coming through there is it can you can you do it on rollers or do you have to change everything to belt and do what we call gap in store so in other words you're building up product uh, in multiple lines and you're shooting them out in, in full slugs instead of trying to singulate them out and, um, but but that's all things we determine on, on what the rate is what area we're in and, and what 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 is actually going on and, you know and, you know what, what was mentioned earlier about you know Things seem to run in waves, and when you when you calculate your rates, and um, you got to know what the peak is, but then is there a peak of the peak, and things like that. So all that has to be taken into consideration when you determine: Are you going to do a pre-sort, or what type of technology are you going to use? Which sort are you going to use? And then, but basically, 
how are you going to merge all the product together um, to get it to the sorter so that you can get it out to the different areas? Okay. Kai, let me ask you this about AGVs and AMRs. Is there any limitation to what the technology can do at this point? Don alluded to it a little bit. There is uh, little limits. Anything that a forklift operator can do is basically feasible. The technology um, where we have the mainstream and the most vendors doing it, where, where the best solutions are out, is when it comes to standardized processes. So I would say anything where a forklift operator would be bored is really good and suitable for AGVs. If it comes to a forklift operating needing to be concentrated and get their skills, uh, we talked about loading, unloading uh, trailers, uh, that can be difficult. Uh, John mentioned if there is uh, loads which are uh, not balanced and so on. Those things can be limits to the automation capabilities, but the systems are learning and are improving. Technology is rapidly developing in these uh, domains with new sensors, new cameras, 3D cameras and everything. So I would definitely encourage anyone interested in automation not to be scared of these things, but to be open, mention that to your vendor and um, there can be a solution can mostly be found. John, I know that the AGVs use a lot of sensors to be able to detect where they're at within a building. Uh, so how does it know when a load is available for it to pick up, how to get that load, how to get it from one place to another, and then also how to be safe around people? Oh, that's, a, that's a large overarching question. Um, to start, how does it know where a load is available? Typically, um, most systems are built around a mapping protocol. So we will map the facility. Uh, in our um, paradigm, we use a version of SLAM, simultaneous locatability, to create a virtual world out of the physical world. In that virtual world, then you create pick and drop locations. So the physical pick and drop locations become virtual pick and drop locations. And from there, you simply tie those to an IO point of some sort or fashion. So something, whether it's coming down a conveyor, sortation piece of equipment, gets to the end and a photo eye says something is here. We would go to that location, pick that load up, typically scan it, maybe use a barcode scanner or some device to determine what it is. Um, either there's a recipe in that upper level system that we just created the map in that'll tell us where to take that load, or we'll talk to a WMS or a WCS that will tell us where to take it. So it's managed, there's two levels of management an upper level software system that dictates where we pick and where we deliver to. Um, and then there's the lower level, which is the vehicle, which understands where it is and how to get where it needs to go. Um, and then from there, um, that software system has interfaces to, like I said, w, WMS, WCS, WES, photoized through PLCs, those sorts of things. And, very straightforward. Um, typically, we'll use the vehicle to, to map the facilities, but if you use X and Y targets, the targets and use that coordinate scheme, you'll have to use a surveyor. But generally speaking, conceptually, much the same. Um, very straightforward. Very, It's getting to the point where customers can now do it, which is very nice as well. And we've been talking before about the safety systems on them, that um, a lot of the accidents that happen within facilities are necessarily a driver of a vehicle, but they're the pedestrians that are around the vehicle. So these technologies have some uh, safety systems built in that other vehicles actually don't have. 
Can you talk a little bit about that and why the safety sure. record is very good around them? So I don't know, and Kai might be able to weigh in on this, probably about 15 years ago, um, we went through uh, ANSI at the time to change the, the, the wording in that safety document, B56.5, uh, from physical bumpers. So we used to use a physical contact bumper on these vehicles, and it took a lot of work to get safety sensors changed to a virtual bumper back in the day. So it's been many years ago. Um, but that is probably that one change is probably responsible for dropping injury rates. I don't think people got hurt badly, but we were dealing with plastic bumpers where they would collapse. And, you know, it, when people get hurt, get hit, it's not a good thing. Um, that technology has advanced. Even today, it's advancing farther than it has in the past. So now, you know, whether it's a six safety bumper or an booster or whatever it might be, almost everybody's vehicle is protected um, 360 degrees and many of them have curtains all the way around the vehicle. We're now using a, a device for guidance that's actually a 3D device that we can take that information in and it creates an entire envelope, not around just the vehicle, but around the load. Um, the technology is advancing um, by leaps and bounds. The one of the questions that came up in a conversation yesterday is, well, what do I do with my people on forklifts? That's a pretty good question because there, there was a tech a few years ago that would allow us to know where they were. It was costly and hard to scale, but it didn't really do anything because they were running into us. We weren't running into them. So it was only us knowing in advance where they were and not so much them knowing where we were. But the tech has come a long, long way mostly around LIDAR, um, you know, the old sensors, some of them were sonar, which years and years ago when we had uh, physical bumpers, we had sonar sensors that would actually know, and they were, you know, they just didn't work very well, but today's systems work extraordinarily well. And in some ways it's the same um, laser curtain safeties that the conveyor guys use for entry into, you know, areas where they don't want people to be. Gil, um, obviously we talked about maintenance and some of these other issues before. You're adding a lot more technology, uh, things will break and will need to be repaired. So how are these systems supported after installation? For example, are there warranties or maintenance packages offered? Oh yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, our whole industry, that's fairly standard because uh, as we'd mentioned before, these are, these are you know, capital investments that are expected to last, you know, years. In the, case of uh, conveyor sortation systems, it could be uh, over 10, 20 years, depending on the, uh, you know, how it's maintained. So the better it maintained it is, the, the longer life it's going to give you. Um, again, different technologies are going to have slightly different eccentricities that need to be addressed. Um, speaking for Leonardo, our technology is the drives are contactless. We use linear asynchronous motors, so no friction, no noise. Uh, even the power and comm pickups to our, uh, our cells to actually do the sorting off the sorter. It's just a bus bar, so very, very minimal contact. Um, to change out a cell, you know, a, a, an Allen wrench and six screws uh, at the maintenance station, you can pop one in and out in five minutes uh, for different maintenance. Uh, that's our technology. I'm sure Chris can talk about the uh, the benefits of, of their types of sortation technology. Again, we, we'd have to design these systems around with that ability to maintain it, whether it's 
us offering the maintenance packages after after the sale or the customer us training them and giving them the tools whether it's the, the materials the spares access to remote support uh, for them to do it themselves but we have to do this this is what mm -hmm. our customers expect and demand so yeah one, one of the main things we offer on all of our resources we sell is, is on-site maintenance training you know and we also now you know make you know we offer a, a service to to make sure that your installer is installed it properly because there's so many different intricate pieces to it to make sure that it's not only not only is it, is it level but but all the joints are are they are they are they correct you know you just got to make sure that the transition because if the transition is not right the sword will still work but guess what it's going to be louder and you get a lot more decibel and you're going to get all that shake vibration so you that those are all key but but as the manufacturer we offer those services to come out and, you know the train your team so that they totally understand it that you know to look at it when they're fully assembled they're they're you know you're like man this is this is amazing technology and you know it, it, it can be very frightening though for your maintenance but the reality of it is is once you get inside of them um they're really they're not that difficult to maintain and there's there there, there may be quite a few moving parts but the way they're designed for access holes and it, it's not that it's really not that difficult it's it's it, but but it, for for first time seeing it, it, it can be a very daunting task. You, you, it can be um, uh, kind of overwhelming. So that's why we offer that service. And and of course, they always come with warranties and things like that. But but it, you just got to keep it maintained. That that's the key. We have just about four minutes or so left in our discussion, and I just wanted to get to one question that basically is is the basis for for doing this. All these technologies can move products within facilities without a whole lot of uh, human intervention. But at the same time, they're not necessarily competing technologies because they have to be applied in a certain way to be the best technology, the best fit. They're tools in the toolbox. So how do these technologies that we're talking about today, conveyors, sorters, um, AGVs, AMRs, how do they all work together and how are they, can they be integrated within a facility together? I think the one important difference between conveyors and AGVs is conveyors are faster, um, very standardized, but uh, typically are installed on the ground. So they block off traffic ways, whereas an AGV can drive and is not occupying the space. A very common since decades, common application where these work together is any factory that has a production will deliver goods on conveyors and an AGV might pick that up from the conveyor and deliver it to a warehouse. But then you mentioned, Dave, there is a lot of uh, sortation technology, a lot of crossbelt sorters, a lot of new technology that came up. And in a very modern lights out warehouse, I would say a typical process can be AGVs are near the inbound and the outbound area and the middle, the core heart of that uh, attached to storage and then uh, singleizing a pallet to uh, itemizing it and then uh, moving it, sorting it. All of that is really more what the conveyors and sortation uh, groups are doing. Right. Anyone else want to add to that? Well said. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks to all of you um, for being a part of it. John, Kai, Chris, and Gil, and also, of course, the Conveyor and Sortations Group at MHI and the Mobile Automation Group also at MHI for putting together our presentation today. We really appreciate it. It's been very informative, very helpful, I think, helping people, especially if they're just starting to look at that automation journey and wanting to figure out what's next. So, and I do encourage you to also go to mhi.org 
to check out some more information about the groups themselves. Again, that's the Conveyor and Sortations Group, also known as uh, CSS within the organization, and the uh, Mobile Automation Group, also known as MAG within the facility, MAG. So check out MHI.org for information on the groups themselves, as well as the companies and solutions that you'll find within those groups. Gentlemen, John, Kai, Chris, Gil, thanks for your time today. It's been very good.